1 Timothy 1 sets the stage for the entire epistle. And it was then that we saw the relationship that has been established over the last 15 years between the Apostle Paul and his disciple Timothy. Now, Paul trusts Timothy, and he trusts him enough to send him to the wolves in Ephesus. Moving through the letter this morning, we enter into this confrontation in Ephesus. And we began reading Paul's firsthand assessment of the false teaching that is intruding into the church. As we settle into the time of worshiping the Lord through the proclamation of his word, I want to ask you to allow me to take a moment to to set a course of where this study will take us in the upcoming weeks. As Paul analyzes the situation in Ephesus and presents it to Timothy in our text in this letter that he has written, he compares and he contrasts false teaching with true teaching. Setting before Timothy, he sets before him the authority of true teaching, as well as the aim of true teaching. But on the other side of that, on the other side of true teaching is false teaching. And Paul outlines a description of the ambition of false teaching. So we have the aim of true teaching, the ambition of false teaching, and the authority of true teaching. But before we even get to these points, Sitting before us this morning is the appearance of false teaching. And so if your Bibles are open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. And it is here that we look at the confrontation in Ephesus and the appearance of false teaching. 1 Timothy, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of God reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a chief expositor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he pastored until his death in 1960, offered speculation of what it would be like for Satan to overtake the church. 
during a national radio broadcast on CBS Radio, the same radio station that aired his weekly program, he began to speculate about what Satan's strategy would be. In that speculation, Barnhouse said that it's Satan's ploy would be this. In a world of Satan, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. All prostitution would be off the streets. Those same streets would be pristine. And neighborhoods would be filled with law-abiding citizens. There would be no swearing. And all the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And then Barnhouse, <laughs> after describing the world, saying all this would be, he then adds this. And every church would be filled to overflowing capacity. There would be no more room. No pew could fit another body. No church could accommodate another attendant. And then Barnhouse adds dramatically, Every church would be filled to capacity. But in each of those churches, there would be no preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The strategy of Satan envisioned by Barnhouse was a church that lacked Christ, not only in name, but in the pulpit. Such a church appears to like Christ, but is absent of any behavior that is like Christ. Such a church gives the people assurance of salvation, but fails to give them a savior. There would be a preaching of the word of Christ, but without the presence of Christ. Such a church appears less like Christ and more like the culture. They've left behind the God they claim to serve. And now there is no distinction between their theology and secular ideology. It's not uncommon in today's churches to find that there's a danger of the pulpit being replaced by performances. Preaching has given way to personal passions. Theology is replaced by theatrics. Methodology is more important than messages and exposition is replaced by experiences. Michael Horton warns that if not careful, there will be nothing in the church that cannot be satisfied by the culture. In his book, Christless Christianity, he writes, the church in America today is so obsessed with being practical, relevant, helpful, and even well-liked that it mirrors the world itself. Aside from the packaging, there is nothing that cannot be found in most churches today that could not be satisfied by any number of secular programs and self-help groups. The church in Ephesus finds itself contending with a faith that is starting to mirror the culture more than it mirrors Christ. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul commands Timothy to preach the word, though there are many in that church who will seek out preaching that tickles their own ears. That's where Ephesus seems to be, a church that tickles the ears, not the hearts of people. In doing so, I want us to look upon this text and turn our attention to this condition. And I want us to observe how Paul and how Timothy lead the church through the turmoil that it is creating. And as we do this, we will notice the who, the what, and the why. 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, we read, As I urged you, 
when I was going to Macedonia. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Here we find who responds to false teaching. We find what exactly they are responding to and why it is so important for them to respond to it. If false teaching demands a response, then we must first note who is called to respond. Notice the, notice the first part of this text in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. From verses 1 and 2, we already know that the I and the you in this text are the Apostle Paul and his disciple Timothy. For 25 years by now, Paul has devoted himself to defending the truth of God. There was a time, though, when Paul would pursue those who publicly declared that same truth. But the most crucial years of his life, they were spent defending that truth. The years in which Paul was most physically fit and most mentally capable, those were the years not wasted on the world, but instead they were dedicated to the pursuit and the proclamation of Christ and Christ crucified and Christ glorified. And now when anything opposes or goes against that teaching, that truth, the Apostle Paul no longer fails to dispute it. The letter to the Colossians and to the Corinthians were initiated by the infiltration of false teaching. In the book of Galatians, Paul confronts Peter about his wayward ways when he leads other Jews to not eat with the Gentiles. In Acts 14, it is said that Paul boldly spoke for the Lord, and he did so against the Jews who poisoned the minds of others. Acts chapter 17, he rose up in Athens to preach against the idol worship of the city. And in the same chapter, at the Areopagus, he specifically calls out their worship of the unknown God. And then in Acts 19, God's miracles that are done by the hand of Paul are used to confront the exorcist and the magicians in the town of Ephesus at that time. Greater to the apostle Paul then his own standing before the culture is the standing of Christ before his own creation. Though he may have to flee each city in order to save his own physical life, he never flees before he first proclaims God's salvation of the spiritual life. It's not surprisingly, then, that when we look on this text, that Paul again doesn't hesitate to defend the truth. By this point, he's traveling to Macedonia. He and Timothy, they have this stopover in Ephesus, and, and the state of the church is appalling to them both. And so Paul finds a church that is steeped in genealogies and myths. It's leading them to a shipwrecked faith. And most concerning of all is that it's coming from the very ones who are responsible for the teaching and the leading of the church. And from his own position of leadership as an apostle then, Paul sets to the task at hand, and he begins to purge the church of the heretics, ridding it of Satan's servants. He tells them to hold to the faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have shipwrecked of their faith, among whom were Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
in a way that some would call unchristian today, Paul deals with the heresy, but not to protect himself. He does so to protect the people, the church. But what Paul would start, he would then delegate to Timothy to finish. While Paul continues on to Macedonia, he urges or tells Timothy to remain. Timothy is charged with preaching the word. He's to be in re- in ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with the complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion, and they will turn away from the listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The severity of the situation is made known by Paul's petition here. Clearly, they intended to travel to Macedonia together, but Paul changes his priorities here, and the text says, I urged you to remain. Paul, speaking to Timothy, I urge you to remain. As in, Paul pleads with Timothy to stay back, to continue laboring beside the people to preserve the gospel. It's as if Paul is saying, please, Timothy, do not go. The crisis here is urgent and you need to remain. Though there's ministry to be done in Macedonia, it becomes more important for Paul to make provisions for the church here in Ephesus and to protect the church. This isn't something that catches Paul off guard. On an earlier trip to Macedonia, Paul had already predicted that wolves would make their way into the Ephesus church and then devour it. He told them as much in Acts 20. We read of it. In his farewell address to them, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It is a common strategy of Satan to deploy false teachers to undermine the gospel. But he does so not in the most obvious of ways, but with subtlety, using what may appear less like wolves and using teaching that is only slightly tweaking the gospel. The warning from Paul in Acts chapter 20 is warranted for every church that has ever existed and every church that will ever exist. Even before the death of John in the mid-90s of the first century, false teachers had already found ways to subvert the authority of God within his own house. By the fourth century, full-blown controversies and theological diversions began to emerge. Christianity at that time, existing under the influence of Emperor Constantine, found itself thriving, growing in number, and growing in influence like it never had before. At the same time arose Arius of Alexandria, who, by calling Christ a created being, denied Christ's essence and Christ's divinity. At this point, church leaders began to intervene to the point that Constantine convened together a conference in AD 325. Today, that conference is known as the Council of Nicaea. At stake was the future of the church, and for weeks the debates would go on, sometimes very fiercely. Hundreds of bishops that came together from all over the empire to debate the nature of Christ. 
And in the end, it was agreed that indeed that God the Father and God the Son were of the same essence, the same substance, and the same divinity. But the council not only adopted that position, saying as much so in, in what they released, but at the same time, they condemned Arius and his followers as heretics. When the truth of God is tampered with, it should provoke a response. Whether it is Paul in the first century in Ephesus, whether it is the bishops of the fourth century in Nicaea, or whether it is even us today in the United States, false teaching demands a response for those who care about the things of God. We cannot maintain a casual treatment of the Lord and his word and his work and his worth. Paul and Timothy respond to the circumstances in Ephesus. And partway through verse 3, we're told what they are responding to. Paul writes to Timothy, Remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Commenting on this, John Calvin writes, As Christ is the end of the law, and the gospel and has within himself all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, so also is Christ the mark of which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. Jesus Christ is the central propitiation of God's gospel. Christ is the central executor of God's law, and Christ is a central figure in God's will. He then becomes the primary recipient of any attack. All false teaching undermines who he is, and what he does. False teachers are charged with teaching something that is deviated from the standard of biblical teaching that was established by the apostles. That's what that word means, to not teach of a different doctrine. They're deviating from a standard of doctrine. There is a certain kind of teaching that God sanctions. It is a teaching that glorifies God, that exalts Christ, and it rescues people. A teaching that is modeled by the apostles in the book of Acts. But the teachers here in Ephesus, they've turned from that standard of teaching, and now they're being held accountable for it. Their teaching is taking them to myths and endless genealogies. The charge of false teaching, then, is not the result of teaching accurate genealogies, like that of Christ found in the Gospels. Rather, it's their misuse of those genealogies, in which they use them to trace back their own heritage and their own lineage to generations ago. And then based on that, they declare themselves as saved, simply based on who they are related to. It was, would be like those today who would say, I'm a Christian because my mom was one. They're saying here, I am saved because my great-grandfather of ten generations ago came from the nation of Israel. That can't be so, though, because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. At the same time they do these endless genealogies, they go farther. They teach myths and fables. Robert Gromacki suggests the Judaizers' myths probably involved clever, logical deductions from the events surrounding Old Testament men of faith. Their conclusions, however, were faulty because they were based upon the wrong principle of legalism. We have seen something similar in Titus as well. 
where Paul notes that the people have devoted themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. At this point, it is clear that the false teachers are fully invested in their teaching to the point that they have no concern about the effects of their doctrine that they're propagating. Because of this, Paul leaves Timothy behind in Ephesus. And essentially, he instructs Timothy to charge them with heresy. This is a twofold thing, much like those at the Council of Nicaea, who charged Arius for heresy for his beliefs and teachings about Christ. Timothy is to do the same here in Ephesus. But he is to declare of them that they are teaching a falsehood and then command or charge them to turn from their ways, to turn from these errors and return to the teaching of Christ. Paul has always taken false teaching seriously. And for those who might consider that this is extreme or, or severe, Consider what he tells the Galatians in chapter 1 when they allow something similar to happen. He tells them, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There in, in the letter to the Galatians, he says the one who teaches falsely, doesn't matter who they are, they are to be accursed. False teaching is worthy of God's damnation, according to Paul. But he's not alone in that belief. James stands with him, saying, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Those who teach God's word have upon them two responsibilities. First, they are responsible for the stewardship of God's word. We'll talk about this more in the next point. But because of what the word of God is, it comes with the power of God. It comes with the power to convict and to transform people. And so a presentation of scripture requires integrity. It comes with God's own authority. It must be used in such a way then that declares God's majesty, not man's mastery. So the first is a responsibility to steward the word of God. But the second is also an issue of stewardship. But this time it's about stewarding people. The teaching of God's word. It should be used in a way that stewards God's people and shepherds them towards their own Lord. The role of teacher then, it, it's a weighty one. That's a weighty one, and the one who fails to partake in it in a godly manner will be judged more severely than those that don't teach at all, according to James. At Ephesus, Timothy charges these teachers with deviating from the standard of teaching. They have fallen short in their role as stewards of God's word and of God's people in their teaching. And so through this charge the hope, the desires that they will return to the word and return to the work of the Lord. 
But those who do not will be expelled from the church, as we just read about Hymenaeus and Alexander, as Paul expelled them from the church in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. It's a twofold thing. When we look upon this, we, we judge the teaching of others, but it also should compel us to judge our own teaching. See, our era is not excluded from false teaching. Every era, every generation seems to find some way to mix truth and error. We see it much today with those who engage with consequences of modern prophecy. These modern prophecy theorists, they, they take every insignificant event in the world and then they use it to declare that the Lord's return is near. Every so often you'll hear somebody, if you pay attention to those things, someone will declare that there are these angelic clouds that have appeared over Israel. These are simply cloud formations that appear like angels' wings, as if we knew what angel wings look like. And then those prophecy enthusiasts will say, look, look, a sign. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Guess what? I know the Lord is coming, and I know the Lord is coming soon. But I know so because he told me in his word. I don't need the signs. I need his word. The Lord's truth, that alone, is always sufficient. We can laugh at the silliness of some of these false teachings, though, but there are others that are even more scary for their deception. The other day, I was wrestling with a book that I was required to read and write up a response to. By the time Bethany arrived home, I was pretty livid at the false teaching that was taking place in it because it was, it was sneaky and it was deceitful. And I knew that first it would lead a bunch of people astray. And then for others, they would use it to measure the church and say, you're not living up to this when it was all falsehood. And so in my anger, I declared to Bethany, I said, I no longer believe in free will. We humans are now just robots, controlled by God. And of course, I don't actually believe that. I believe that when we look at the word of God, we see God's sovereignty. And when defined rightly and according to scripture, we see man's will in that. But that reaction was based on how the authors twisted theology and they did so to justify alternative lifestyles that were inconsistent with both God's commands and God's creation. And so they, they, they wrote specifically this. The Christian doctrine of free will, it highlights God's capacity to tolerate and honor human choices. They're saying that because God gave us free will, he is okay when we do something of our own, even if, it results in sin. See, even today, we must contend for the faith. We must respond to those who undermine God. This demonstrates the problem with false teaching. See, belief in false teaching of the world will justify the sin, but belief in the true teaching of Christ will justify the sinner. False teaching demands a response. So far, we've seen the who. Who responds to false teaching? In our example, we say it's a, see that it's the Apostle Paul and his disciple Timothy. 
They do as any believer should do. They stand up. They honor Christ as the Lord is holy. They're always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks them for a reason, for the hope that is in them. And yet they do it with gentleness and respect. But we have not just the who, but also the what. What could possibly be so awful that Paul and Timothy feel the need to respond at all? It's a false teacher's deviation from the standard of truth. Their ongoing speculations prompt a response, one in which the false teachers are confronted and held accountable. And so now we must ask, why? Why is this so serious that the response must be severe? And we find an answer. Paul writes, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We just discussed this. We preach and teach that all things come from God. Therefore, they must be stewarded for God. We speak of money as the Lord's, and so we must use it or steward it for the Lord's glory. We talk of a building as belonging to him, and therefore we must steward it for his purposes. But we must not forget that in the same way, Scripture, our Bible, it also belongs to the Lord. The Scriptures, they're described as his word. His willingness to reveal his word, both orally and in written form, they're a gift from him. As a gift, then, they too must be stewarded for his teaching. Paul himself models this stewardship, actually models it for the Ephesians at that. He shows them that his call is to steward the mysteries of God, the word of God, and he writes to them in chapter 3 in his letter to the Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. The Ephesians, though, have failed to follow the model, this model of of Paul. And now that puts them under the authority of an interim pastor rather than their own leadership. By being more concerned about their own speculations rather than the spiritual life and growth of the people, the leaders have failed to steward the truth. William Hendrickson notes, It has been correctly observed that a person's teaching should be judged by its fruits. Whatever fails to promote stewardship should be rejected, and even though it has no other fault. And everything which arouses nothing but disputes and everything which arouses nothing but disputes, it deserves double condemnation. There is no fruit from the false teachers' teaching here. Their myths, their endless genealogies, their speculations, they contribute nothing to God's work. In fact, it does the opposite. It undermines all aspects of God's sovereignty. It undermines the gospel by preaching a salvation by another means. It undermines God's plan by suggesting that there's even another way. 
And it undermines God's character by suggesting that his plan was not perfect and thus he's not perfect. Now salvation or the stewarding of faith through, through the gospel, the stewarding of faith of salvation through the gospel, it's critical because even a slight deviation, it has ongoing ramifications in other realms. And you may think it's extreme to think that false teaching undermines so many things. But think about the most common form of false teaching. That form that says salvation comes by those who do good works in order to earn God's favor. That undermines God's will. Those who propagate a works-based salvation are suggesting that God's will was not perfect. It was flawed, they say, and, and needs man's participation for it to work fully. At the same time, it undermines God's will. It also undermines Christ's work saying that it was not sufficient for salvation on its own. It needs more. Christ's work needs to be supplemented by man's work. And finally, it undermines God's worth. A works-based salvation, or teaching, indicates that we cannot trust God's grace and God's mercy as a means to save us. It's saying who he is is not good enough to make us good enough. False teaching does so much more than just weaken the gospel. It undermines everything we know to be true about God. And so stewardship of the gospel is about stewarding God and stewarding our relationship with God. One of the valid concerns about false teaching is that it has an impact on the Christian life. And Douglas Moo suggests false teaching is often revealed in false living. Following bad doctrine leads to bad practices. If belief influences behavior, then false teaching will lead to false living. It will lead not just to lawlessness on one extreme, but on the other extreme, it will lead to legalism. Both are an abomination to the Lord, and both are contrary to the stewardship of the faith incumbent upon the church is the obligation to protect the flock from false teaching. When Corinth was presented with a different gospel and a different Christ, a different Jesus, Paul tells them to deal with it. Puts it this way. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. The body of Christ lives under the charge of Christ to shepherd the flock. And it does so first by offering protection to the flock, keeping away the wolves who will come in and bite and devour from within. It's fascinating to me that there was a time when the Bible was used to defend against myths. But today the assault against the Bible is that it itself is a myth. In letter three to Polycarp, Ignatius of Antioch writes, You must not be panic-stricken by those who have an air of credibility, but who teach heresy. Stand your ground like an anvil under the hammer. A great athlete must suffer blows to conquer, and especially for God's sake, must we put up with everything so that God will put up with us. Show more enthusiasm than you do. Mark the times. Be on the alert for him who is above time, 
the timeless, the unseen, the one who becomes visible for our sakes, who is beyond touch and passion, yet for our sakes became subject to suffering and endured everything for us. We live in a world that will tolerate anything but truth. They say, give us the rights we demand, affirm us in who we want to be, and follow us in our ways. It matters not how absurd those demands are. It doesn't matter how bizarre those affirmations are. And it doesn't matter how foolish their ways are. But then when it comes to absolute truth, they say, no, anything but that. The irony of the situation is that without absolute truth, they have no rights to demand. Without absolute truth, they have no personhood that would exist to affirm. And without absolute truth, their ways lead to destruction. But that description of the culture sadly doesn't apply just to the culture any longer. It's a description of those who would adopt the name church and claim to be lovers of Christ, who is truth. You only need to drive around our small little city to know that this is the case. Like Paul and like Timothy, the Lord has called upon us to be a people who both live his truth and who defend it. We cannot only live his truth and not defend it. If we live it but won't defend it, that makes us neutral. And the Lord Jesus Christ said there's no place for neutrality. The one who will live the truth but not defend it basically says, this is a moral code for me, but I'm not willing to stake my life on it. At the same time, neither can we be a people who will only defend the truth but not live it. To defend the truth but not live it makes us hypocrites. So we must live it and defend it. By the example set forth by Paul and Timothy here, we've learned something very, very critical. Sometimes attending to our faith comes by contending for the faith. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, you are a perfect God. Your way is perfect. Your plan is perfect. And Lord, we see that first and foremost in salvation, Lord. Father, we thank you that you have revealed this way in your truth. And Father, that you called us to be defenders of that truth, and most importantly, to be stewards of it. Father, I pray that you would cause us to be discerning, that we would spend time in your word, that we would know it intently so that we could discern when false teaching is going out, Lord. And Father, may we be protectors of it then as a result. But like Paul and Timothy, may we do it with conviction, but also with gentleness. Father, we thank you for the way you continually revealed yourself to us in this way. We commend all things to you in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.